Hi, Dr. Brett Hill here. It's back to school time, and one thing us parents don't want is kids coming home complaining of sore feet. The flat, wide, and flexible shoes in the Vivo Barefoot Kids range is the perfect fit for your child's feet to grow up healthy and strong the way they're designed to. And the great news, the Wellness Couch listeners can get 30% off the Vivo Barefoot range until the 1st of February 2016. All you have to do is go to www.souldistribution.com.au forward slash the wellness couch. That's S-O-L-E distribution.com.au forward slash the wellness couch and enter the code the wellness couch. Vivo Barefoot, the original barefoot shoe since 2003. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Backchat is about being your best. It explores the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in neurology. Today, we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best with your eating as well as your thinking. Our podcast today is targeted for other health professionals, though I'm sure most of this information will be of great interest to the general public as well. To help me today, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Anthony Coxon. G'day, Anthony. How are you going? I'm well, Paul. Very well. Um, good to be here for another podcast. It's a bit of an interesting one, this one. Um, just thinking about uh, what we do on Backchat, and you and I are health practitioners, of course, chiropractors, and we work each day informing and educating patients and hoping, hopefully making a, a bit of a difference in their lives. But Backchat's really about more about exploring beyond that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's sort of looking at a, at, a, at a bigger model in some ways. And so we're trying to get information out to the public at large, and the topic today is public health. But where does that fit? You you said a little bit about eating, a little bit about thinking. Maybe it might even cross a few of our other pillows. I, I guess we'll just wait and see after we uh, chat to our special guest today. Yes, uh, Anthony, our expert today is Dr. Peter McGlynn, who's a chiropractor of 30 years clinical experience, a graduate of RMIT University with postgraduate qualifications in functional neurology and a Master's of Public Health. He's currently doing his PhD of Public Health at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, looking at nutrition and maternal and child health in Papua New Guinea. He's interested in the integration of research, public health and clinical practice in both developed and developing settings. Hi, Peter, how are you going? Well, thank you, Paul, and uh, thank you for having me. Excellent. Now, I suppose we better start with some definitions, and uh, if you could perhaps explain to our Backchat audience, uh, what is public health? Well, in the broadest possible terms, I guess um, public health is defined as a society's efforts to protect and promote and restore health. Um, So it refers to all organised measures uh, to prevent disease or promote health or to prolong life among the population as a whole. So... That entails various activities which aim to provide conditions in which people can be healthy and focuses more on entire populations rather than just on individual cases of patients or diseases. So, Peter, we've known each other for quite a while. I think um, you're a few years ahead of me through chiropractic school, but we, I certainly know that you're a very busy chiropractor in practice. How does a, a chiropractor who's got you know more work than he could possibly manage uh, then move out of practice and then get into public health? Why, why, why did you go in that direction? 
Well, it wasn't um, a move which occurred sequentially like that. I've actually had a parallel interest in developing countries for probably 20 or 30 years through a um, friendship in Papua New Guinea. And so I've been visiting Papua New Guinea and um, looking at the communities up there for a long time. So started off doing a little bit of development work in broad-based development in health and in education and just uh, sending school books and things up to the village where I was working. But that led to me um, helping to form a non-government organisation doing broad-based community development, and I was concentrating especially on the health aspect. So while I was a practising chiropractor as well, I was developing an interest in public health in that context. So, so obviously the, the two are still going on coinciding. In, uh, you're still in practice uh, while you're doing your public health? Yes, absolutely. And I, and I know – sorry, go ahead. As – we started to formulate more formal programs in health and education through our non-government organisation. I realised I needed more skills to actually uh, work out what was needed health-wise in that context and um, then what interventions were necessary. Well, well I can so tell... I decided to study public health in a more formal setting. Well, I can tell you're obviously interested in things overseas. Is that a, Now, our back chat li- listeners won't be able to see this, but I can see just over your shoulder, and I'm assuming you're at your home doing this uh, podcast with us. Is that a, is that a mask from, uh, from New Guinea that I see on the wall there? There is a very big one and uh, beautiful art coming from Papua New Guinea. Fantastic. Excellent. So, so, Pete, of course, practitioners like chiropractors, GPs, physiotherapists, other sort of primary health providers work in a, in a private setting – what sort of public health initiatives are relevant to private practitioners? Well, I guess all public health initiatives are relevant to all primary contact practitioners, and a lot of us are doing general public health measures in our practices, maybe without even realising it, but it really does depend on the focus of the practice. So preventing disease and promoting health and prolonging life are common concepts, and all health practitioners would in some way kind of um, attest to the value of those things. But especially with chiropractic, those concepts of promoting health and preventing disease are you know, very synonymous with the chiropractic concepts of wellness and homeostasis and lifelong health, which we talk about in our practices all the time. But it's not just chiropractic. Other professions also follow the same precepts in general. But I see um, preventive measures and education on health promotion in practice to be a very broad Thing, which a lot of practitioners are using day to day. The pr- profession um, that I'm kind of going into and talking about public health in a more formal setting is just formalizing those things and um, using them in your practice to improve not only the um, health of the individual in front of you, but um, using your practice as a vehicle for wider community and public health. So public health should really be a point of commonality with all health practitioners and can be an opportunity for networking and bridge building and for the benefit of our patients and the health of the whole community. So yeah, a lot of chiropractic practices, especially I suppose, Peter, do health talks to their their patients or uh, clients that come into their practice. And often, you know, we look at our five pillars, Anthony, we've heard talks where chiropractors have talked about mindfulness, movement, uh, food, sleep and nervous system being so important for chiropractic. Is that sort of an example, Peter, where when chiropractors deliver programs like that where they're educating their patients about these sort of broader factors, perhaps in a group setting, not one-to-one, is that sort of an in-house public health sort of initiative example? Absolutely. 
So we might be providing brochures on optimum nutrition or um, exercise or rehabilitation. And as chiropractors, or well, most chiropractors have a primary focus on neuromusculoskeletal conditions. Um, and so a lot of our public health initiatives will be based around that. Exercise programs, optimum nutrition, things like um, dealing with obesity, um, a whole range of things relevant to our presenting condition. But we can also make public health initiatives much broader than that and use our practices as vehicles for things which may not traditionally be seen as chiropractic territory. Um, so there's a whole range of things we could talk about <clears throat> that way. So, Pete, um, I, I imagine that most of the people involved in um public health would come from, I guess, a government um, background or maybe they work with charitable groups or, or those sorts of things. Uh, are there many health practitioners that are working in, in, in public health? And if so, is there a particular uh, skill set as a health practitioner that you, that you bring to that field? Well, through my contact with other people working in public health, most people who are formally employed in public health definitely have a... Um, a focus in government, but um, a lot of the people have come from a clinical background like myself and the people that I'm working with on a day-to-day -day basis are very much medical, um, chiropractic, um, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, nurses, people who have actually just wanted to move more formally into the public health space but mostly from a clinical background. And this is not new in chiropractic either, Dr. Jenny Jamison who you would have heard of, and a uh, very kind of well-known chiropractic educator in Australia wrote a very kind of good book on chiropractic and public health, and there have been a number of authors in the US too who have done the same thing. Um, one in particular, Dr. Cheryl Hawke, is a PhD, American chiropractor, who's published widely numerous papers on public health and chiropractic. They're quite prol prolific authors, aren't they, really? Peter, regards uh, a lot of their publications and the, the, the research they've done? Absolutely, very much so. And not um, inventing the wheel, but um, drawing information from a number of um, ex areas of expertise and formalising it to put it into a more clinical setting. So, Peter, when we talk about the concept of uh, patient empowerment and for patients to take control of their own health, is this how you see public, the public health fitting into day-to-day into -day health practices? Yes, very much so. That's um, really the focus of what sh we should be doing. Depending on the focus of the individual um, practice, we may choose to be have a very much a nutritional-based practice or we may be particularly wanting to go into sports-based practice or a lot of people want to be kind of involved in paediatrics or... Um, other specialties, um, but it really is about empowering the patient and giving them the skills to actually um, design the programs and actually know how to manage their health under our guidance. So, so Pete, how do you sort of align, say, patients having perhaps checkups monthly, sort of uh, monthly sort of schedules versus them having complete empowerment of their health? How, how does that sort of situation, um, how does that relate to what you're sort of doing? Well, as private practitioners, normally a patient presents with 
a particular condition which they're concerned about, and that's the starting point. And so, of course, we have to meet them where they're at and address their particular issue of concern. But at the same time, um, we may see a whole range of factors which are contributing that to that issue uh, that we need to alert them to and to um, address that clinical condition. Then we have to also address those risk factors um, and that specifically starts in a chiropractic practice normally with a neuromusculoskeletal type condition. So we're talking about things like exercise programs and optimum kind of nutrition and weight loss and um, how to maximize sleep, all those kind of things. But at the same time, while the patient is in our office, we can be discussing things like um, tobacco control and examining skin for you know, potential skin cancers and um, alerting them to um, the risk factors for diabetes and a whole range of other things which we're clinical cap clinically capable of doing but are not necessarily seen in the realm of chiropractic practice. Now, I believe you guys caught up recently at the RMIT graduation. Uh, just yes. yes, we did. In the last week or so. So, you know, there we have the future of chiropractic amongst uh, these RMIT graduates and don't you think, Anthony, you know, it's an exciting time to be a, a chiropractor going forward. There's such a broad scope of practice. If, you, if we think about what Peter's talked about there, some of those public health initiatives, smoking cessation programs, which is well accepted in, our, in the literature and success campaigns with that, to nutrition, to exercise, you know, where we got to the neurology and the nervous system, there's so much scope there. Well, I think uh, one of the things that's important, I guess, for practitioners to remember is um, – how valued their comments are to the patient. I think we sometimes underestimate right. when when your wife tells you to give up smoking, that doesn't have the same impact as when your doctor or your chiropractor says those things. And research shows those sort, that, that that is the case. So I guess a holistic practitioner, a wellness practitioner, really needs to be thinking rather than just applying a passive treatment thinking the, about the person as a whole and, and, and addressing some of the issues that uh, Peter has, uh, has been bringing up. Peter, if I can just follow up with, with a question uh, along that line. Uh, are there controversies within public health? I mean, not many people are going to uh, argue that uh, exercise is good for you, but say, for example, in uh, the field of nutrition, you know, how does paleo diet compared to, uh, you know, 5 plus 2 diet? Is there... There must be areas, I imagine, where people in public health have disagreements on the way in which we should be going. Absolutely. And, and every science has um, controversy within it. And for every theory, there's usually some evidence, however weak or however strong, which can back up that particular theory. And public health, like anything else, is definitely an evolving science. And there are many issues open to debate. But the important thing is to understand how we can examine the evidence available in an objective and unbiased way and, and free ourselves from ideology. So, for example, you mentioned nutrition. Optimizing nutrition is just one um, aspect and you've got the high-protein, low-fat diet and you've got the high-fat, low-protein diet and you've got the low-carb diet and a whole range of different issues. And if, if you look at them, there's evidence out there that they work in some context. It's just a matter of um, assessing the needs of the individual patient and actually looking at best evidence for the population as a whole. And not everyone is going to respond in the same way. So it's a matter of looking at the science, looking at the evidence, and exactly, and then tailoring it to the individual patient. 
I suppose just putting my hand up with a nutritional bias uh, with with postgraduate qualifications with nutrition, I, I think one thing that's really interesting is that um, the one size fits all doesn't work in nutrition. Um, it's it can, and that's where I suppose a public health initiative it does try to be global in its guidelines to, for recommendations, which works on a population level and a regulatory body level. But when we come down to the the, the patient, the the n equals one in front of us, uh, you know, we we really can't just say this diet's going to work for you. We've really got to go through a process of exploration to understand the history of the of the patient's uh, dietary inputs over time, and and sometimes exploration, sometimes trial and error, and then we find you know what this is what actually works for you. It's a it's a it's a dairy free type diet. In some cases, it might be a gluten free. Sometimes it might be a salicylates, amines, or glutamates that are out of the diet, which is very specific and and um, very very poorly understood in this country. But except for the Royal Prince Albert Hospital in, in New South Wales, so when you've got all those scenarios, it's 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 pretty hard, Peter, to find uh, the one size that fits all. Absolutely, and public health science and data is always assessed at a population level. So. We know that for the vast majority of population, this particular initiative, and you're talking about nutrition then, is going to work. Okay, but We don't know for that 5% um, whether that's going to be the case or not. And the same thing happens for, um, well, a very controversial issue, vaccination, for example. We know that in general, um, the population certainly is protected from a range of diseases by vaccinating at up to a certain percentage of the population and we don't know whether an individual child is going to be the one to have a particular adverse reaction and it's it's only ever population data that um, we can make these judgments on. So I guess by its nature public health has to be a little bit on the conservative side so if we go back the nutrition model is probably the easiest one to describe it's you know less junk food is going to be good yeah. no one's going to argue about that yep. but yep. Uh, good plant-based versus... plant-based you know food intakes is going to be pretty good yep. in regards at all fruits and vegetables are going to be generally pretty safe but again if you've got issues with salicylates or fructose sometimes that'd be different but yeah I mean there's certain fundamentals that we can have but then you know the next layer of trying to uh, be specific can sometimes be difficult and requires a you know, trained practitioner to work through. And it's the difference really between the you know the practitioner or the public. You know the public message is going mm. to be very different to what you know uh, Peter or you or I might have to an individual patient mm. when we know their individual circumstances and can tailor their diet, exercise, neuromuscular, skeletal care, whatever it might be to but, that individual. But it reminds me what you said earlier, Anthony, regards the importance of what comes out of our mouths as practitioners, and we're the gatekeepers in many ways, aren't we? So we can have. Uh, public health initiatives, but the opportunity we have with our with our patients in front of us is, is so critical to make that individual change, which then obviously can sometimes make uh, massive differences in comorbidities and um, improvement in lifestyle. Excellent. One of the um, public health initiatives, which is often held up as the kind of the shiny public health initiative, the most successful public health initiative ever presented, is the fluoridation of water. And that has made a very big impact on, obviously, dental health in a developed setting. Um, but, of course, there, there are people who argue that that is not a good initiative for the individuals and would like to filter out their fluoride from their water or not to include it in the first place. But um, it's, the evidence is there that fluoride in water is very good for dental health. But um, there are other opinions about that. 
So uh, many years ago, uh, we're going back in the, I think, the late 90s, um, WorkCover did a program where they were trying to encourage, I guess, people who had work-based injuries, particularly related to low back pain, to get up and moving. Okay. As chiropractors, it's always very yeah. natural for us. That's Supported the first that. thing that we yep. do. Movement is the key to life and certainly the key to getting well again. Uh, but the thinking on the public scale at that time was very much that, you hurt your low back, then rest mm. in bed. Mm. So that, which doesn't serve the the the, um, the patient very well because mm. they'll have their problem for longer. Mm. It doesn't serve the, uh, the, the the community because we have more people out of work for longer. And one of the things they tried to do with uh, the help of me you? and uh, many other practitioners. Yeah, yes. What did you do? Tell well, me. Well, I, I was up there and. Um, uh, in Port Melbourne, being filmed, uh, pretending to be a chiropractor, which I actually was, and well, they said I, I said I acted very well as a chiropractor. Right. Uh, but the message very much was, you know, uh, get up and get moving. Yeah. And uh, and I guess that was a TV campaign. It ran for a little while, but obviously there's lots of money spent in these sorts of programs. And uh, to get a message across, uh, particularly over a long period of time, that that would might be uh, uh, a little bit too expensive. And most of the programs that you see. Uh, Peter, that are effective? Are they more the grassroots, low cost, but try and cover a whole range of different practitioners over a long period of time? Or, or are some of the programs very, at the moment, expensive, go for the media, that type of approach? Uh, I think the ones that work best are the ones that are kind of sustained over a long period of time. Um, there are certain public health initiatives which need to be done in, a, in an acute setting, or an emergency setting, for example, a response to a particular crisis in health. Or, But um, the type of program that you were just mentioning uh, needs to be broad-based and sustained over a long period of time to be, to be um, successful. And I think that's an example of a program which has been largely successful. I think most people would know now that lying in bed with a back problem is not the ideal form of approach and that's something that probably wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago. I sometimes wonder with these sorts of programs, although obviously most of what we learn are from you know, from our schooling at an undergraduate level, from reading and being familiar with research, from attending seminars. But as I was doing that, I was kind of, Ed, I was kind of wondering how much of this message is for the patients or how much of it is for the practitioners. Because I think as practitioners, when patients are used to a certain model, sometimes shifting and changing that model and say, look, actually, this isn't the best way to go. Uh, another example of that might be, you know, people who are using antibiotics on a recurrent uh, problem for for minor infections instead of al- allowing the body to to do things to heal itself. Uh, so I guess it's it's really education across the board, not just uh, not just um, you know Joe Public. And Peter, do you have do you have any thoughts regards campaigns that are more effective, sort of trying to avoid pain versus perhaps encourage pleasure? Which just that sort of idea, you know, we look at say for instance road trauma where the campaigns, they've been very successful in, in Australia. I know some of the campaigns have been exported and sold overseas and some of those road traumas are really you know, in your face. You know, they demonstrate a lot of pain and, um, and, and you see it emotionally with parents who have talked about lost children or showing accidents you know, that are right in your face. Is there any sort of literature or support suggesting that sort of approach is more effective than, say, more of a health promotion type approach? Two things come to mind when I I hear you ask that question. The first thing is how successful those shock and awe ads have been for road trauma. I think that has really shocked the public into um, 
Yeah, over a period of 15 or 20 years, it's really made a big difference to the road toll. I think that's been a, certainly a big contributing factor in, in, in terms of road trauma and changing behaviour, certainly just appealing to the raw emotion. But that's been conducted in conjunction with a whole range of educational um, initiatives as well, um, you know, at the level of um, learning to drive programs and uh, penalty programs for speeding, penalty programs for texting um, you know, that kind of thing. It's all kind of fed into the same thing. But the shock and awe, remember the first HIV ads yeah. came out mm, and there yeah. was the um, Grim Reaper ads and that that was such a shocking campaign where the, the death mark, the, the Dr. Death kind of arrived and was bowling people over with HIV. That was very soon discredited and outmoded and it was replaced by a much more kind of dispassionate educational kind of pro program where people took the emotion out of it and it that in that particular instance that was shown to be a lot more successful i wonder though that maybe that initial campaign might have got impact though and got people talking and you know maybe got it well, on the radar maybe there's no doubt about that it has certainly had a very big impact in terms of um well i can still remember it now and how many years ago was that it was probably 30 years ago and interestingly, I can remember it now, but I can't remember the program that followed it. So there, that goes to show you how impactful ah, it was. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the softer, yeah, the softer yeah, approach. Yeah, okay. You probably <laughs> can relate a whole range of aspects of HIV prevention and treatment that weren't included in that campaign that you've acquired through the subsequent campaigns. Yes. Okay. Yep. And Peter, if we look at, say, a big public health issue, which you know, as chiropractors we see every day now, the growing trend of obesity that uh, we see not just in adults, we see now in children. We see the children's hospital are diagnosing type 2 diabetics in adolescents now. It's, it's, it's frightful. And, you know, we look at the success of the smoking cessation campaign. Do you have any thoughts about what we need to do to try and stem this obesity epidemic? Well, you're probably a better person to actually discuss this than me, seeing you have specialty qualifications in nutrition. But I think... As a general rule, it's it's all about educating families. Yep. Um, that's the first thing. And I think it all starts, of course, in the family and what gets bought at the supermarket. So it's an education program which needs to start not with the eating but with the shopping. And parents and children both need to understand the ramifications of that. And if you don't buy it, you don't eat it. That's that's the, the first aspect of it. Um. Look, I agree, and I think, you know, you said it interestingly about children as well, and I think um, from a primary school education perspective too, I mean, there's now stars, there's, there's pushes, we say, the Stephanie Alexander program where we're mm. teaching kids to cook and uh, grow uh, their own f uh, fruits and veggies in the garden so they start to realise that this is actually what a real bean tastes like, yeah. you know, this is what a snow pea tastes like, and then encouraging them sometimes to perhaps upskill the parents to say, hey, mum, dad, we did, we did this at school and, hey, why can't we ever do a veggie patch at home type scenario? Absolutely. It's that familiar familiarity with, you know, with uh, the whole process, that food doesn't come just from a supermarket. There's a step before that. And, yes. Uh, and that we can be involved in that step before that. And I think the complexity of obesity, of course, is it's multifactorial. There's many causes. So it's not only the food, it's the lack of exercise that we see as well. Do you have any thoughts on that, Peter, with regards to the lack of exercise component? Uh, well, I think that we've kind of evolved into a society where technology is kind of very much a part of that. 
and uh, I think that in the days when I was growing up, uh, um, we didn't have access to technology like we do now, so we're always outside, and we're Mm. always running around and jumping around with our friends, and of course now we're much more likely, me included, to spend a number of hours sitting um, in front of a screen, and that's uh, part of the problem. Interestingly, just to kind of mention um, the overnutrition thing in a developed setting, I'm working mainly in Mm. undernutrition in a developing setting. It's a whole different aspect uh, of work, but it's the same thing. Education is the key there. It's a matter of how to maximize nutrition so your kids aren't underweight and your kids aren't stunted. So that has ramifications of a totally different type, but it all starts with education of the parents and knowing what's around them that can help that situation. So whether it's overnutrition or undernutrition, it still comes back to education, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So um, what we like, one of the things that we like to do at uh, Backchat, Peter, is to understand the person delivering the message. And um, obviously you're a man with many years of experience, uh, both as a chiropractor, in public health, in um neurological rehabilitation, you've done lots of things. Um, Was there a particular moment in your career uh, where you had an impactful, pivotal experience that really made you say, this is it, this is the path I'm going to take and this is the direction I'm going to go? Two things. Firstly, when when I'm talking about my chiropractic career, it was a a success with um, a chiropractic success with a chronic injury I had in track and field. I was running uh, 8 and 1500 metres and chiropractic helped me in a way that nothing else had been able to and that very much impressed me and so it set me on a path of chiropractic. But secondly, in my my developing world area, just getting to Papua New Guinea and seeing that they have a whole range of different health issues, needing a whole range of different health interventions, and it made me look at the bigger picture of how we can improve the population of a whole community rather than the population of individual person, and it's a totally, not only a different setting, but a different focus, and I brought that wider picture of public health view back to my practice in Melbourne, and so I started thinking about how we can do the same thing in a developed world. So they were the two biggest things. Fantastic. They're obviously very complementary, aren't they? The whole public health and drawing it into a private practice. I think just most practitioners out there, I think, could be doing more in that area. I think so. You know, we've got a really unique talent here, Anthony, because, you know, Peter's not only does done all the chiropractic, he's done the neurology that, you know, you and I have gone through, and then he's gone on and done his Master's of Public Health, right, now doing his PhD. So he's gone through all those sequential components of develop his uh, his uh, knowledge and education basis. But then he's done it in two different environments, you know, in the sense of going to a, a first world country and then a developed country. So, I mean, it's pretty amazing in regards what he's been able to sort of galvanise over really how many years, 30 years of practice, um, 30 years of uh, over that time period and then, you know, keeping moving forward in regards trying to refine, refine his knowledge and develop it further. I mean, what for our listeners? I mean, on that point. Oh, yep. On, on that point, just just to mention that the things that kind of come together from all that experience, from my perspective, is that we we have we all have skills as health practitioners that we we're educated with, and we've got special interest areas, and we're all, our practices are focused on different things. And we can never be all things to all people. So to have a broad public health practice in a very busy city practice is not easy. So I think 
you need to focus on the type of practice that you want to have and look at the local burden of disease and the things that are most appropriate for people of different age groups and try and target those particular things but establish a network of other health practitioners that are specialists in other areas and have a very good referral network that you can actually access very easily because we, we just don't have the time and the energy to kind of do everything for every person. So, so it's partly about establishing the network and partly about specifically focusing on a particular interest area. So it's, it's not just to see where the chiropractic is, to see where the collaboration. Yep, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. The collaboration, that's where public health has its most success. Excellent, excellent. Now, regards um, your, your extensive amount of work here, Peter, our listeners from Backchat would love to have some take-home messages uh, that they can perhaps listen to what you've said and perhaps bring into their lives. Would you mind sharing perhaps three particular health messages? Sure. Well, the first one would have to be know the context that you're working in. The health needs of individuals and communities are very different in different locations, and so the health solutions needed to be tailored to that local setting. Okay, it's very stark in a developed versus a developing setting, but suburb to suburb and nation to nation, the health needs of individuals and communities are very different. So know your local community first and gather evidence that has been established from other areas and you know what works in that particular setting. That, that's the first thing. Okay. The second thing is establish good network for best health outcomes. Not only is that very professionally satisfying, but as we can't be all things to all people, we need a network of specialists that we can refer to um, for the things that are beyond our interest area or expertise. So knowing our context, good collaboration and referral networks, and as chiropractors in particular, we have an effective suite of skills to positively influence health outcomes. And we need to combine our clinical practice with public health promotion. Well, Anthony, what do you think? Oh, terrific. Like it's really good information for, for practitioners just in terms of the understanding, one, how to be a little broader, but mm. two, how to sort of focus it in and really sort of pick your mark, you know, get get good at the things that you're good at mm. and then know people are good at the things that you're not good at. Yeah, and build those relationships and uh, who's the winner? The patient, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Peter. Thank you so much for coming on Back Chat tonight. And uh, look, Peter can actually be seen as a chiropractor at Williamstown, the, uh, the Williamstown chiropractic practice there on www.williamstownchiropractic.com.au. Thank you for listening to Back Chat. To stay abreast with updates with Back Chat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Back Chat Podcast. All relevant website links of today's show will be on our Backchat Podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you with one thought. Be the best of what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat Podcast. Hi, it's Damien Christoph here. Are you ready to take your life to the most incredible level possible in 2016? Well, we've had three sold-out wellness summits these last few years, but honestly, nothing comes close to the wellness breakthrough, and we have just three spots remaining. Your favorite wellness couch experts, the wellness guys, Karen Smith, Kim Morrison, Quirky Cookings, Joe Witten, 
Marcus Pierce and of course Carl Brock are gathering in the Dandenong Ranges for three days and two nights for one incredible event. If you want possibly the greatest peer group in health and wellness to help you catapult your life to the next level, then we'd love to see you at the Wellness Breakthrough from February 5th to the 7th. But again, there's only three spots available. Entry to the breakthrough is by application only, and to apply, simply email your contact details to marcus at thewellnesscouch.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.